Hey, welcome to the New Life Podcast. We're so glad that you could join us. New Life is one family, many churches, and we're located in Brisbane, Coolangatta, Moreton Bay, and Rabina. And we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. I'm excited you're joining us because we are in our vision series. And at New Life, Vision Sunday is not about what we're launching, but rather being reminded of who Jesus has called us to be. Over the next two weeks, we will look at what we believe are four key discipleship priorities that are central to what it means to see more people more like Jesus. When this happens, we believe God will usher in renewal in Australia as we outwork His plan and heart for our church. Welcome to Vision Sunday and enjoy the podcast. Would you pray with me, friends? Father, thank you that right now, though I have words prepared, The real win, Lord, is that you speak. You've got a message for each and every single one of us. And I pray, Father, as we step into your scripture and hear your heart for our church, this community, and the movement of which we're part. Father, would you just speak to us individually? We want to become more like Jesus, not just because it's our mission, but really it's what we think you're doing in the world in and through your church. So come, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to talk just briefly about growing as disciples. Uh, In World War II, there was a gentleman whose name you've probably heard before, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's quite a scholarly looking dude. I don't know if I'd rock those glasses as well as he did. I'd like to see myself try. But at the time, around the 1930s, the nation state, led by, at the time it wasn't Hitler, but um, social Nazism was on the rise and the Nazi state came to full fruition uh, just after the 40s and that kind of thing. But early in the 30s, um, some policies started to get legislated by the government. A host of things started to shift and the German evangelical church uh, started to capitulate on their convictions, get a bit wavered with them, uh, and get into bed with the nation state of Germany. In other words, uh, they allowed the policies and the legislation of social Nazism to start to affect the kind of body of people they thought they'd be. And they, in one short phrase, I'd say it like this, they sacrificed the lordship of Jesus Christ for the reign of the Fuhrer in the Third Reich. And the way they did this is uh, the Third Reich instituted that in the German evangelical church that they'd get rid of all non-Aryan clergy, so all non-white and fill-in-the-rest clergy. They'd get rid of the Old Testament and they'd revise the liturgy to make it more German, as if God is German. Uh, In 1934, there was a synod, lots of good things happen at synods. There was a synod, as a Uniting Church joke, there was a synod, the evangelical churches, and what was formed at this synod in reaction to this strong arming of the government was what became the confessing churches and Dietrich Bonhoeffer was right at the helm leading these confessing churches and what they said was we will not sacrifice the lordship of Jesus Christ on the altar of the reign of the Third Reich. We will not make it such that our clergy would be only from an Aryan race. We would not get rid of God's inspired word throwing off the Old Testament just for some revised version of the New Testament as if there's two different gods behind both parts of scripture became the confessing churches. Now later on, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was commissioned to start a seminary, a Bible school, a training ground. And many of you will know this story, it became a place called Finkenwald. There's actually a place on the outskirts of um, a particular town 
Finkenwald, and uh, he started this training ground, this seminary. And in this seminary, it was extreme. They'd wake up early for prayer. I think they'd play soccer as their like halftime sort of after lunch kind of vibe. But then they'd retreat to study scripture, always reading Psalms over one another. And a lot of onlookers looked at this camp on the outskirts of Finkenwald and their critique was this, what a hyper-spiritual, unnecessary, superfluous group of people. And one of Bonhoeffer's friends ended up traveling over because they were curious about the fanaticism of this group. And Bonhoeffer puts them in a boat, they row across a lake, and they find themselves on a bank and they ascend this hill and as they reach the top of this hill, they look over at a Nazi training camp. And there you've got fighter planes landing and taking off. You've got bands of people marching, all giving hail to the Fuhrer. And Bonhoeffer looks at that and looks back at his friend Wilhelm Niesel. And he says, you critique me for being fanatic, but there is a whole nation state rising up from young to old that's gonna take over the world. This must be stronger than that. 12 people from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's seminary ended up getting arrested by the Gestapo. A number of people, Bonhoeffer himself, lost his life. And here's the question. What did he cultivate in their midst that led to such a convicted, steady, stable, in the face of persecution and pressure, people of God, because of which we look back at the church in Germany and go, actually, they remained a gospel people. And the answer's simple, it's discipleship. Bonhoeffer was convinced that he wanted to be part of and wanted to lead and take a place in a people that were committed to growing as disciples. And that kind of thing, that vision, that mission, wasn't just something that was allotted to Bonhoeffer in and through him for the sake of the seminary at Finkenwald. It's something we wanna prioritize as a church. It's our second G, third G, sorry, misspoke. We wanna grow as disciples. Now the question is, how might we do that? How might we do that? And I just wanna look at Romans 12 and pull out one thing that we might observe in this text to get us ready to become the kinds of people that Jesus would have us be on this earth. Romans 12, if you've got your Bibles, open them with me, verses one to two, Paul says this, and we looked at Romans last week, so there's a bit of flow on here, which I'm really grateful for. It says these words, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. One main thing and one small thing we're gonna pull out of this. How are we gonna grow as disciples? Well, I think Paul would give us this. We need to think the right things about God. Do you notice that there? Now, this might not sound revolutionary, might not sound like rocket science, but just go with what Paul says right there. He says, do not conform, verse two, to the pattern of this world. So he's saying, look out at the world. You should be able to notice the pattern in the way people go to work, in the way people eat, in the way people interact. What's the pattern? Notice it. Okay, great. Now, don't be conformed to it. How? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word here is metamorpho, which if you remember those novels and you like, they're like next to the goosebumps and the um, Captain Thunderpants novels in the library section when you're in primary school, but it's like the, meta, the Metamorphosis series and on the cover is like this human 
that by the end of the first page, isn't it now a horse? And you're like, oh my gosh, what's he done? He's metamorph, he's metamorphosed. And the, the word here is actually reminiscent of a particular image. The image is of a cocoon or a chrysalis that slowly but surely becomes a full-fledged butterfly. And my emojis sort of tell the story behind me on the screen. This is what Paul means, that we might be transformed, all parts of us from the inside to the out, head, heart, hands, mind, body, spirit, all for the sake of being changed into the image of Jesus. What's he saying? He's saying this. He's saying the biggest issue we've got, at least when we start out thinking through transformation, is a theology one. What's your image of God? What's your understanding of what Jesus is like? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Get rid of that which is unhelpful and untrue and ungood about God and restore it, refresh it with what's true about God that we find out through the scriptures, metamorpho, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Now, one of the objections that comes in the face of this is, is simply this. Well, Alex, if we strengthen our theology and we get louder about what we believe about God in any area, whatever it is, it could be the way we live our lives, it could be our picture of what he does in judgment, it could be our understanding of the cross, which we looked at on Wednesday night for our atonement lecture. If we get stronger on that, won't that become divisive? Won't that become the thing that separates us as the people of God? Surely God wouldn't have a strong strengthen our picture of him and our articulation of it because what if someone disagrees? There's a beautiful heart there which is the heart of the Uniting Church that we would be always the people that major on the majors, minor on the minors but here's the downside about that objection. It's simply this, that that itself is a theology. That's a particular picture of God. That's one way to structure your mind as you look out at the divine and experience him in the scriptures and the questions begged is this, well do we get that picture of God in the scriptures? What is our picture of God? Where do we get it? Where does it come from? And how does it provide the home within which we navigate life and grow as disciples of Jesus? Paul would say this, what you think about God, in fact, this is me just now quoting a guy named A.W. Tozer, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. It's literally game-changing, it's life-changing, it's world-transforming, why? Love what C.S. Lewis said. He said, no one could think up a crucified God. Which means, where do we get that image? We get it in the scriptures. Our theology of God, we need to get it right. It'll become the place within which we know what love really is. It'll become the thing through which we understand how to navigate theological difference, even as a particular community here in the city. Why do I say all this? I say all this because Paul's point is this, get your image of God right, and everything else will be, well, not simple, but easier. Particularly as you try and be transformed into the image of God of his son. Here's the bigger thing, and I'll do it a bit quicker than I intended. We need to not just think the right things about God, but we need to do more than think the right things about God. What do I mean? I mean, have you ever had that experience where you feel like you heard something true about God or helpful for life? For example, uh, forgive your enemies. Or one of my favorite verses, do not be anxious about anything. And you hear that and you think, that is awesome. I really like that. But there's an experience gap between what you know to be true and what you experience in daily life. Like this is literally the story of my teenagehood as a follower of Jesus. Go to church on a Sunday, hear a life-inspiring, changing message about how I should pursue holiness, 
or get alone with God or increase my devotional life than to wake up Monday going, that was awesome, but how do I do it? Like, wouldn't it be really cool if all we needed to do to experience life transformation was plug in data or entertain a new idea about God or just experience a new notion that we see in the script? Wouldn't it be awesome if we read Do Not Be Anxious and just like that it downloaded into our lives, in through our hearts, through our minds? And I would love that. That would be so helpful. But how many of us also know that that's just not the case? That actually, I would think in the modern, literate, educated Brisbane City Church that opens the scriptures each week, that we are, we are bloated with information about God, are we not? Like we, we know the story, we, we unpack the scriptures, we, we have right thoughts about God, but how often do we find it to be the case that, oh, my life's not changed? The transformation Paul promises I'm not experiencing in my daily rhythms, what's the gap there? One of the most helpful thinkers I've looked at on this particular issue is a guy named James K.A. Smith. He's a philosopher from Calvin College in the States. And he writes a book called You Are What You Love. And this is just, I'm going to speak to those who, um, how would I say it? Those for whom this would be an issue. The people who think a bit more deeply about these things, just for a moment. He he makes the case uh, that since the Enlightenment, we've been hoodwinked to think that because we're just brains on sticks, that all we need to do is to experience change, is just plug in new information, plug in data, and you'll experience the change that's available to you. But all the great thinkers know that this is wrong. Bonhoeffer knew it was wrong, hence Finkenwald. Saint Benedict knew it was wrong, hence the Benedict order and the rule of Saint Benedict. Modern psychologists know that this is wrong, hence cognitive behavioral therapy. Physicians and physiotherapists and PTs know this to be wrong, that you can't just plug in, I wanna get fit, and wake up fit the next, that actually so crucial to change and transformation and being formed is repetition with our very lives and bodies, which is why I'm not surprised Paul says it like this. He says, verse one, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Why is that there? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Offer your bodies. What? As I step into this next point, landing the plane, I just want to invite the band up behind me here. Paul was a Jew. Paul understood the sacrificial system. Paul knew that there was a people who were once not a people, but now by the grace of God through the exodus of the Israelites are a people. If you're a Christian, you'll know the story. There was an unformed people group sitting under the rule and the oppression of Pharaoh, being slaves, increasing in their workload, not because they could, but because Pharaoh was an oppressive ruler. And God, through Moses, released his people through the Exodus, through the uh, River Jordan, out to be his people, not just free from the rule of Pharaoh, but free to worship him. And as a means by which to remember that grace, as a means by which to call to mind the beauty of what God had done, Here's what God instituted, the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system existed to remind Israel that God is holy and they are not. It existed as a means by which God could atone for the sins of his people so that his presence in their midst in the tabernacle could sit there without harm or spoil. And so you imagine a people who day after day, night after night, are taking animals, sacrificing them, putting them on the altar and letting the fire fall down. The one ingredient you need for that to be predictable 
is for them to be dead. And Paul completely inverts the metaphor here. And he says to Christians who follow Jesus, you wanna experience life change? You wanna be transformed? Take your everyday living life and put it on the altar. I love what Tim Keller says. It's a long quote. He puts it better than I ever could in a shorter time than I ever can. He says it like this, the old sacrifices, they were no problem. You killed it and that was it. They burned up and it was over. A living sacrifice means every day, every hour, every moment, right now, you have to deliberately, consciously, continually and perpetually offer yourself to Him. It's constant, it's never over. What it means to live a Christian life is that you put to death the right to live life as you choose. You put to death the idea that you belong to yourself. You put to death the idea that you know best what should happen in your life. You put to death and you give it to God. And it feels like death to really say, you know best, but I trust you. Here's what you say in your word. I don't like it, but I'm gonna do it. I don't choose anymore. It feels like a death, but on the other side, it's life. That's why it's a living sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that leads to life. What's he saying? He's saying that the way you offer your body as a living sacrifice is you say, my mind, my heart, my flesh, every single part of me is not free from the gaze of your transforming love. Let me put it like this as I sort of land the plane here. All of us have parts of our lives we withhold from the transforming love of God. All of us. It could be our mind, what we think about Him. No, no, I, I want to think my own thoughts about you. God, I want to construct you in my own image. It could be our heart. Um, God, you claim to be gracious and loving, but I'm just going to really believe in the depths of my soul that I need to earn my way back to you. Um, it could be our hands. Oh God, I know I should do this with my hands. I know I should love my neighbor. I know I should go out of my way to serve people. I know I should be on mission for you. Or I know that I shouldn't be visiting these websites late at night. Or I know that I shouldn't fly off the handle at something so minuscule in my marriage. Or I know that I shouldn't think that particular thought about my neighbor and evoke envy in my heart. And, but oh, sometimes it feels okay. And, and all of us have different parts of our lives that we just withhold from God. And the task of discipleship is just to say, actually, there is, there is nothing off limits to you, God. You can bring your encouragement and your critique and your refining fire of love and shape me and mold me into the image of your son. What's the takeaway point? I think if we're gonna grow as disciples, new life, church family, friends, we're gonna to need to think the right thoughts about God. We're gonna say, actually, you get to construct for me, God, what I believe to be true about you in your word. And we're gonna need to do a little bit more than that because there's a whole world through its rhythms, its habits, its practices and its calendar that can form us into the image of something which could end up being so different to the image God has for our life. We need to follow in the practices of Jesus. We need to apprentice after the embodied life of Jesus. I love what one writer said. They said, if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you got to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus, thinking the right thoughts, embodying the right practices, offering our lives with this posture of actually God, nothing's off limits for you. And as I sacrifice myself in a way that feels like death, we actually first get to experience the beauty of His life as we inhabit that space. And so here's what we wanna do. There's a lot there. My hope is that God said something to you in that time. And I really believe He did. Because this is His Word and it never returns void. 
And there's something in that passage each one of us get to walk away thinking about and perhaps put into action as we articulate our own sense of next steps. On the seats where you're seated, you'll see some cards. And those cards are our gift to you. And I filled this in last week myself and I absolutely loved it. Because I think I said it last week, but I've never been part of an organisation, a church, a movement, an entity that's so clear and unwavering on mission, but so empowering in how it invites people to take, take hold of it. And so here's our, here's our gift to us as a church family. We would love every single individual in our church. In fact, imagine if every single individual in our church said, I like more people more like Jesus. And I really feel convicted about gathering the lost, gluing in community, growing as disciples and going on mission. What would it look like for you to say this year, I'm gonna grow as a disciple by, and just articulating it for yourself. Not as a ruler with which to hit yourself when you fail, but just as an intention as you walk forward from this place this afternoon, all of us together after vision series, stepping forward into more people, more like Jesus. So the band's gonna play. And here's my encouragement. Just in the quiet of your own heart, ask the Holy Spirit. God, for me to grow as a disciple this year, what would you have me do? And just in your own space, write it down and make a little prayer moment with you and, you and the Lord. So why don't we do that for the next few moments and I'll be back to finish this off for Vision Series. The um, first missionary from Britain He's a Protestant. Whoever went to China, is a guy named Robert Morris. First missionary, Protestant, to ever go to China. And uh, it was 1807. And the ship leaving the dock from his own country wouldn't allow him to board, and so he jumps on an American ship. And he finds himself making his way to preach the gospel in word and deed to the great Chinese empire. Robert Morris. And uh, as he's on the ship, the captain turns to him and asks him this question. He says, Mr. Morris, do you expect to make a great impact on the Chinese empire? And he looks back at him without flinching and he says, no, sir, but God will. No, sir, but God will. In my own life, and also as I've pastored a church and conversed with other Christians, what I've discovered is that there's two equally opposite errors when it comes to thinking about mission in the Christian life. One error is to be so convinced of its magnitude, and you'll see a spectrum behind me on the screen, is to become so convinced of its magnitude, but get anxious that it's all on us. The other is to forget its urgency and to just grow complacent with lesser things. I feel this in my heart. I know this to be true. This is the great risk in thinking through mission in the Christian life. But as a church, we want to go on mission. But we don't want to make the mistake of thinking that it's all on us. And we also want to be convinced of its urgency and not grow complacent with lesser things. So what would it look like for us as a church to follow God on his mission? And the text that I just had on my heart as I prepared this week as we round off vision series is Acts 1, verses six to nine. 
If you're a Bible buff, you'll know that this is a catalyzing passage. That Jesus has just lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserved, uh, was raised again on the third day, and he stands before his disciples as this glorious, resurrected, first fruits over creation, a sign of what's to come in other words. And he looks at his disciples and he says these words with them gathered around him. They ask him, Lord, are you at this time gonna restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We wanna go on mission as a church. What could it look like? And as we step into the scriptures, what are some things we can observe as we think through what that mission could be as we gather his, his people here in the heart of the city? Two things to observe. One, the scope of God's mission and two, the location of God's mission. And even before I jump into this, here's my encouragement. We're gonna do the pen and paper thing in a moment. You know what I'm saying? I'm gonna write down, God, what are you putting on my heart? Even as I start to speak, why don't you just ask the Holy Spirit? God, what are you putting on my heart to do as your as a follower of you, here in the city center church with a mission of more, like what, what do you want me to do, Holy Spirit? And, and then two, my hope for this afternoon is it's not just the digest of information or this like slogan-esque kind of vision. My hope is that we zoom in on that word power and we walk out with a big vision of what God's doing in the world and we are so aware that we just can't do it. Like we just can't make this come true. We just can't make this happen. It's gotta be nothing other than, unmistakably so, the power of God in and through his people. So two things, one, the scope of God's mission and the location of God's mission. The scope of God's mission. There's a big question when people start thinking about mission that comes up, what, to what does it apply? And the two camps that people sort of find themselves in is this, simply God's mission is to save souls through the preaching of the gospel or God's work is social transformation, horizontal renewal, as we demonstrate the gospel. Now, you'll know me, you'll know my answer to this question is the old El Paso ad. Why can't we have both? But read the words of Jesus. He said this, then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, that word kingdom's interesting because Jesus doesn't challenge them on it. Now, here's the question. If God's mission in the world that Jesus commissions through his disciples is purely to save souls, why doesn't he challenge them on the kingdom? Because that seems quite horizontal. Like, just picture this, what is a kingdom? A kingdom's not just a new state for the soul. A kingdom's like a civic reality. There's walls, well, maybe not the kingdom of God, just walk, work with me here, friends. You know, a kingdom, it, it, it's, got, it's got policies. It's got procedures, it's got culture, it's got architecture, it's got beauty, it's got museums, it's got art, it's got history, it's got archaeology. There's quite a number of material things that make up the kingdom. And they're asking this, when are you going to restore the kingdom? Where are you going to take that promise you gave to your Old Testament people that they'd be living in your place, under your rule, with your presence and your blessing? When are you going to, when are you going to make that come true again, Jesus? And Jesus doesn't critique their question. He just says, look, about the time we don't know, live as if it's right now, but that you have a part to play to make it happen. The, a good definition for the kingdom is by a guy named Vaughan Roberts. He puts it like this. He says, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Helpful definition. 
In other words, is it purely about souls being restored? No. Does it exclude that? No. What's in mind here? Material, spiritual, holistic, soul-infused reality. In other words, everything. God wants to restore everything. God wants to take the brokenness of the material world and the sin of every human soul and say, in Jesus, you can be forgiven, set free, and partner with me that you might be the hands, feet, and mouthpiece of me so I would see renewal in this time. But when you start to say these kinds of things, that God's kingdom is horizontal, social, material, and then at the same time vertical about our soul's relationship with God, our heart's experience of his presence, when you start to say those things, then the next question is this, well, which is more important, right? Like, it, and this is literally things that scholars debate, and... Um, one of the, the works that I found really helpful in thinking this through, because it just gives us marching orders for what we expect to do as we partner with God's mission, is just the work of a guy named Christopher Wright. And he, he'd say it like this really helpfully, um, that evangelism, saving souls, the preaching of the gospel, it is the ultimate thing we can do, but that doesn't mean that nothing else is as relevant. Which means as we think about God's mission in Brisbane City, God's mission in the suburbs where we gather in small groups, God's mission in our workplaces, here's what that could mean. It could mean that mission for you looks like you going out of your way to sacrificially serve your neighbor by mowing their lawn because they can't that week. But here's what would be the fault. The fault would be to say that they could, pretend, they could figure out that somehow you think Jesus is Lord from that, right? No, you've got to marry together word and deed, gospel preaching, gospel doing. Deeds adorn the gospel, but the ultimate thing people need is relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And when we think about our mission in the world as God's doing that through the Spirit, here's what we should picture. Social renewal change, transformation, the reforming of policies that change things for the better, and at the same time, ultimately, people being restored to relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's always both. It's always both. It's always both, which means the scope of God's mission, it's not just souls. It's not. But if you think that you can make a real difference in this world, then it's going to look like you're preaching the gospel so people might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ while you live that out with your deeds along the way. That's the scope of God's mission. That's what he wants to do in the world. It's about the renewal of all things and the resurrection of bodies. But how do we get them there? They come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the scope of God's mission. And second, the location of God's mission. Verse 8 says this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This passage, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, has been one of the seminal, catalytic, important passages to inspire world missions across the globe. Do you feel that with me? In Judea, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. When the early Christians heard this, you know what it inspired? Literally the book of Acts. You know what I'm saying? Paul was commissioned to be the apostle to the Gentiles, taking the message delivered to him through Jesus Christ out to those that didn't know God. It inspired the missionary movement. You think of the Protestants in England and Ireland and the broader UK. They were commissioned, and this is a passage they'd recite to one another. Here's what we're doing, brothers and sisters. We are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is the picture that God, through his people, wants to outwork through the concentric circles of a particular geography. You'll see this on the screen behind me. Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And here's the really cool thing. Because it worked, guess who we are on that particular map? 
We're the ends of the earth. That's where we are. That's who we are. Which means we also get to play a part now in that concentric circle expanding mission. But here's the trap. The trap is that we would think to go and reach unreached people groups and take them the gospel indeed, renewing mission of God, that we need to become missionaries, that we need to go overseas or become a professional Christian. When I was in the UK, one of the guys who's preaching, I, I loved because it was profound, but also it was just really funny, a guy named Kenan J. John. If you've listened to him, you'll know what I mean. And he said, a missionary is not someone who crosses the seas. A missionary is someone who sees the cross. That in other words, to be a missionary and receive Acts 1 verse 8 as the marching orders for the Christian life, it doesn't mean you need to book a plane ticket to go and find a tribe of people that don't yet have the scriptures or the gospel or Jesus Christ. He says, that could be your call. Awesome. Celebrate it. Fund it. Let's go. But he says, that's, that's not necessarily the case. All you need to do to be commissioned as a missionary is get a compelling vision of Jesus, be one by it in your own heart and soul, and think, I want others to come and know this incredible story, this incredible human Jesus Christ himself. That's what it means. To be a missionary doesn't mean to be someone who crosses the seas. It means to be someone who sees the cross, who's so compelled by who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what Jesus invites us into, life-changing, world-transforming relationship with him, and say, I want to partner with that. I want people to know that. I want to play a part in helping people see that. And so here's the question. What does it take to be a missionary? Actually, just to know Jesus Christ yourself. This is what it means to go on mission as his people, to get a glimpse of Jesus and go and share, which means this. As a church, we often commission church plants. As a church, we often commission uh, other people into works of ministry, whether in pastoral roles or even eldership or a whole host of formal things. Uh, And here's what this passage means. It actually means we're, we're lifting the lid on who gets to play. And we're saying each and every single one of us gets to play a part in God's mission. Why? I love what Pastor Mike says, because a saved people are a sent people. So you might say, I do not feel called to go and partner with the church plant at New Life Morton. That's fine. If you're here, here's what we should all assume about one another. I feel called to be on mission at New Life Brisbane right? Or you might say, I don't feel called as a pastor. Not a problem. Totally fine. But by virtue of being a Christian following Jesus, here's what you can, and indeed I'd say, have to say about yourself. I'm a missionary, right? So this changes the fundamental way with which we look at life. You might say, I'm a, I'm a lawyer, nine to five, Monday to Friday, I'm grinding it out, I'm looking at law textbooks, I'm working through things, and man, work is hard, I'm a lawyer. And I'd say, that's true, but deeper than that, you're a disciple of Jesus and a sent missionary. That's just true about you, which means this, you might be a lawyer, but actually that's just how you, find, that's your role currently. What's more true about you? You're a disciple of Jesus, you're a sent missionary, which means your workplace isn't safe from the gospel in word and deed, from you. Like that's just part of your life, part of your calling, part of your commission. Um, You might say, I'm a full-time mum. It's like, awesome. That's true about you. And I would champion that. We'll resource that. We'll care for that. Incredible, exciting. But here's what's more true about you. You're a disciple of Jesus and you're a sent missionary, which means your son or your daughter or your family, they're not safe from your nudges in the direction of Christ-likeness. They're not safe from your encouragement to extend the scriptures to them. They're not safe from this loving, gentle, but stubborn refusal 
to let them go another day without opening the Bible with them, right? Why? Well, not because you're not a mum. You are a mum. But deeper than that, you're a disciple of Jesus and you're a sent missionary. This is what we wanna do as a church. We wanna grow as disciples. We wanna go on mission. We wanna see our workplaces, our families, our friendship circles, this church refined by the love of Jesus, the life of Jesus, and those that don't yet know him in each of our spheres of influence come to meet him so that we look around one day and go, oh, you too? You weren't here a few months ago. What did you learn about God? Tell me your story. Oh, I'm so encouraged. What a testimony of God's goodness and God's grace. Can I invite the band up to join me? What would it look like for us to take this seriously as a church? One of the joys of pastoring New Life Brisbane is that in many ways, I really think we do. There's so much awesome stuff happening. We've got meals to the homeless on our streets. We've got small groups gathering in homes from Rochdale South to like Moreton Bay. We've got, and I could just keep listing them. And these aren't accolades by which we congratulate ourselves. These are just me saying, we should be so encouraged at what God's doing. Like he's doing such an awesome work in our hearts as we meet as, as his people and celebrate all he's done throughout our weeks. Like it's just really encouraging and exciting. The beauty of this moment is that we get to say to God, we get to say to one another, and we get to say to ourselves, okay, this year, to gather the lost, took me a bit, glue in community, grow as a disciple, and go on mission. Lord, here's what I'm presenting to you. I'm presenting that I am, and here's mine. Um, uh, my wife and I have the joy of starting Alpha this Tuesday night. We've always wanted to run it. We've just always been busy with other things since we've stepped into leadership at New Life. I'm so excited to gather lost in that way this year. What is it for you? Um, gluing community. Um, one of the things that's sort of wreaked havoc on the Western churches, I think, in a good way, is, is boundaries. Boundaries are helpful. Um, but one of the things that's easy to do in pastoral ministry is, is so easily divide my time. I'm just being honest. That's a church thing. This is an Alex thing. And my wife and I have just had such beautiful conversations this year going, actually, we ne it needs to be a bit more gray than that. Why? Because I'm not just the leader or pastor here. This is my family. I've got to do that wisely, but sure. Okay, that's one thing for me. Grow as disciples, what am I doing this year? I have not figured that one out, to be honest. But I'll use this moment and go on mission. Kath and I just feel really called cool to open up our dinner table, just that little bit more, to those who don't know Jesus. What is it for you? We've got ways we centrally resource that as a church. Alpha, small groups, catalysts, sure, awesome. Write it down, get involved. That's exciting and encouraging. But maybe something else. So can I encourage you? What would it look like if each of us just articulated one thing as we see more people more like Jesus? Why don't we take a moment? Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you and you'd like prayer or maybe you'd like to join us in the mission of seeing more people more like Jesus, you can contact us through our website, church.nu, or you can reach out through our Instagram or Facebook pages. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.